Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hello and welcome. You may not uh, know me, but my name is Elijah Daly, and I get to be one of the ministers here at Christ Church. And I'm going to be walking us through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, someone you probably do know is Alexander the Great. He is one of the most legendary figures of all time. He was a military genius, expanding the Greek empire to heights that no empire had seen up until that point. Now, what's ironic is that it is rumored that he died not at the hands of a superior warrior or king, but by a fever. And when he did die, his kingdom would end up passing to four of his generals. One of those generals' names was Cassander. And Cassander married the half-sister of Alexander the Great. What was her name? Thessalonike. And he named a city after her in the, in the area in which he was given in Macedonia, what we know today as Greece, and he named that city Thessalonica. This city became the most important city in this area, a major port city where ships would come in, where people would travel to, to worship the gods, to pay their respects. It became a free city state, even into the Roman Empire. It was a powerful city. And it makes sense that Paul would want to come to this city where so many people lived and gathered and worked so that they would begin to hear of the gospel and respond to it. And we even know that there was a major highway running through this city called the Via Ignatia. This highway led basically all over the Roman world. And in addition to what this highway did for travelers and, and tradesmen alike, we, we think it was probably the road that Paul himself would have journeyed on as he planted churches. And it was through this road that Paul would come from Philippi into Thessalonica to begin to plant a church. We see this all unfolding in Acts 17. And we look at this story and we see that Paul begins to go into the synagogues and reasoning with the Jews there, showing them that the Old Testament was always pointing to Jesus. Every promise that God ever made was always being going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And Paul went with his friends, Timothy, Silas, Luke, hoping to help people see the gospel clearly and respond. And it says in Acts 17 that many Jews and Greeks did. However, there was a certain sect of Jews who, were, who became hostile to Paul, to Paul. They became hostile and they became responsive in a way in which they gathered a mob together to come and seize Paul and bring him to the city officials. But when they couldn't find Paul, they seized his friends instead. And they brought them to the city officials. And this is what they said. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. And the truth is they were not wrong. That is exactly what Paul was saying. There's a new king. And that's what Thessalonians is all about. What life is like when you're waiting on King Jesus? Why are we studying a letter like this? What makes it so significant? Well, a couple things. The first is that all scholarship, almost all scholarship agrees that Paul wrote this letter. Almost all scholarship agrees that this was one of the first of his letters, which means almost all scholarship agrees that this was one of the very first letters that we have, if not the very first letter in all of the New Testament, written less than 20 years 
after Jesus rose, died, and rose from the grave. How close we are, how close we are to the very witnesses that saw Jesus and responded to him. And when we look at a letter like this, we're looking at the ways in which we can begin waiting on King Jesus in the very same ways. Now, verse two, verses 2 through 3 in chapter 1 spell out really the, the structure, the theme of the book. I want you to listen as I read. It says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's faith in the waiting. There's love in the waiting. There's hope in the waiting. This forms the structure of our book, what these things look like when we are waiting for the king. So let's jump into the book. I want to just read verse 1 for us, and then we'll just kind of begin unpacking it as we go. Verse 1 says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul, Silvanus, he's also called Silas in the book of Acts we have seen, and even in other letters that he's mentioned. And Timothy were Paul's friends with him when he went on these missionary journeys. We actually meet Silas in Acts 15, right after the the Jerusalem council. And when Paul's beginning a new missionary journey, he invites Silas to come with him. And then we meet Timothy in Acts 16 in in Philippi, uh, and he invites Timothy. And what we see even with the relationship between Paul and Timothy is something really intimate growing as almost like a father-son relationship. There's almost a mentorship going on, which is why we have both 1st and 2nd Timothy, these letters written to Timothy, urging him and, and, and encouraging him and consoling him at times that he may see the gospel clearly, that he may protect the gospel, guard it, and that he may proclaim it boldly. We see all of these things, even within the in the letter of Thessalonians, when we see Paul Uh, commissioning Timothy to go to this church even when Paul is away to help encourage them and, and console them and help proclaim the gospel boldly even to them. And we see that these relationships really are beginning to form within the church and really a beautiful picture of what the church can really become in light of what the gospel does when it changes us. Now, what's interesting is that in almost every other letter that Paul writes, he usually states who he is or what God has called him to do or who he is in and under Christ. He usually notes his apostleship, his authority within the church, but he doesn't here. Why? Why doesn't he mention this? And I think it's because the community would already know him. He's been there. He's invested in their lives. He doesn't have to earn their respect. He doesn't have to show any qualification. They simply allow him to speak into their lives because they know who Paul is. They know his heart. They've seen his heart. They've been changed by his willingness to share the gospel. And so he has no need to show them or to tell them who he is. Their relationship is on full display But I also don't want you to miss how Paul begins to identify the church either. Listen to this. He says, To the church of the Thessalonians who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the body of believers, the church. Literally, that Greek word means the assembly. Those coming together because they are in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. They're in them. This isn't a social club. This isn't fandom. This is a a categorically a redefinition of every part that used to identify who they were. Every part is changing because they're in God. They're in him. 
They collectively make up an extension of all that God is. God is the head, and we are becoming as limbs of the same body. We're engrafted into the vine, and we're becoming something truly different. And this is why Paul celebrates in verse 2. We can, we can read, it says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, this is our thesis of the book. This is the structure. He's saying, I saw your faith, your love, and your hope. I remember the ways in which you embodied those things, and I'm writing you to encourage you to keep going, to keep running the race, to keep walking towards Christ as we await his return. Now, what I want to do is start to break down what it really means to wait in faith, because I think that's what Paul is going to do through the next several verses. What faith looks like? What is the result of faith? What are the outcomes? What could it be? And the first thing that I believe Paul is going to say is that faith is effective. And then he's going to say that faith is obvious. He's going to say faith is bold. And he's going to say faith is binding. So let's look at how faith is effective. He says this in verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia coming right off of the heels of Paul celebrating and being so thankful for what he has seen in these believers of faith, love, and hope. He continues on saying, we know that these things are true. Why? Because you are a people chosen by God, elected for salvation. Why? It wasn't because they were good enough. It wasn't because they were moral enough. It wasn't because they were wealthy enough or popular enough. No, that's not what Paul says. He says, we know that you were chosen by God because when we came with the gospel, when we came declaring the good news of how Jesus overcame sin and death and is now reigning as king, you responded. We saw the evidence of power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction, full assurance of all that God has done. And when we begin to look at these things, we can see very clearly that faith is effective. It changes us. And I don't want you to think that these three things of power and the Holy Spirit conviction are three separate categories. They're not. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's always in power. It's always with full assurance because faith is effective. It changes you. This is why Paul says, you saw what kind of men we were among you. It changed us too. Remember, Paul was a passionate religious Jew who would track down Christians and have them killed. He thought he was being honorable to God, and yet his life has been altered by faith, completely changed, because he puts it all in King Jesus. And the truth is, our lives should be changed too. When we have faith, it's effective, because regardless of the fact that none of us were saved because of our goodness, faith produces goodness. And this happens regardless of our context or conditions. Paul says here that what was so amazing of the faith that they had was that it was producing fruit even in the midst of conflict and struggle and suffering. When the world was trying to put them at their worst, God was producing their best. Faith 
is effective. Faith is also obvious. Let's look at how faith is obvious when we get into verse eight. It says this, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we did not say anything. Now, don't miss how Paul frames this here. He says, the word of the Lord sounded forth. It rang out. This is the only time in the entire New Testament that this word rang out is used. But in other ancient literature, it usually has this idea of kind of this clap of thunder or the sound of a loud trumpet blast. This is a word, a very descriptive word that begins to show how their very lives are becoming a a trumpet sound of the gospel of Jesus. The very message of how they've received God is being seen by everyone. Their faith is a shout not have how good they are. It becomes an anthem of praise of what God has done. And it says in verse 9, he continues on, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So what is the word saying? What are their lives reporting? That when Paul and his friends came, they were received, their message was received, and because of that, they turned to God from idols. This is meaningful. Thessalonica had lots of idols. It had lots of gods. These were people who were the inheritors of Greek mythology. But if you remember in Acts, this is part of why Paul and his friends get kicked out to begin with, right? They bring them to the city officials and they're saying, this guy's preaching another king and his name is not Caesar. His name is not Caligula, the Roman emperor of the time. No, this king's name is Jesus. And they are anticipating his return, anticipating the the return of the living and true God, not an idol crafted by human hand. He continues on in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, it says that they're waiting for the son. Again, we're seeing this waiting on the king, this Jesus raised from the dead, delivering us from the wrath to come. And there are a couple of theological points to make here that I don't want us to miss. The first is that heaven is not some ethereal space. It's not some place that spirits go. Heaven is where God is. And Jesus, when he rose from the dead, is not a spiritual being who's now in heaven. No, his physical body got up from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God. He's seated on his throne waiting for that time of return. And when he does return, wrath will come. This is the second point. There is a wrath, a justice of God that that God is patiently waiting to enact, hoping that all people would come to be covered under the grace of Jesus Christ when they have faith in him. You see, Christ, he lived a perfect and sinless life. And even though he never deserved to die, he surrendered to death. Because although he secured an eternal reward, he offered that reward to us. That by standing in grace through faith, We may not experience the wrath of God, but praise God because Jesus took that wrath upon himself. But the truth is there is a wrath coming. It will come for those whose faith is not effective, whose faith is not obvious, whose faith is not true. God's wrath will come to all of those who either treat God like an idol, serving him only for their own benefit, or for those who don't believe in God at all. But for those who do believe, For those who have faith that's real and true, there's deliverance, there's hope, 
There's love. And our prayer is that this faith would begin taking shape even, even today, even in you, right now, in this moment, as we study and we look at what life is like when we're waiting on the King. And next week, we'll continue to explore what waiting in faith means as we dive into chapter two. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.